Today's reading of scripture comes from the book of Isaiah and our last message from Isaiah, at least for this year, and it's from chapter 59. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Angie's going to read this for us. Isaiah chapter 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words, Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands afar off. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay, wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. In 2005, um, 
this church was about six years old. And I would say those first six years of this church's existence, they weren't so easy. Um, that's sort of an understatement. But there was a lot of personal challenge as well as discouragement. And I remember facing this crossroad. It wasn't just, though, a crossroad about Wellspring Church. It was really a crossroad in my own personal journey as a pastor, but actually even more so as a Christian. And to me, I sort of want to look at that journey and use this metaphor of hiking. Hiking is something that I've come to enjoy a little bit more than like I shared a, a, a number of months ago because that's what old people do is they hike. They don't play basketball or football or anything like that anymore. They just hike. So the idea of hiking a large mountain, it generally is pretty exciting because you get a bunch of friends together and they get all their materials, they pack their backpacks and lunch and first aid kit and all of these things, water, and you go to the trailhead and everyone is excited. There's just this fresh air that you breathe in and you know everyone's talking, conversing and talking about life and you start going. And it's always exciting. It really is. I know some of you have never gone. You think, how can that be exciting? But it is. And so as everyone is moving forward, there's this just seems so new, the conversations. But as the incline and the grade of that incline increases and it gets sharper and sharper, as it goes along, what's interesting is that it gets quieter and quieter the conversations slowly die down, especially if the grade is really steep and you've been now going for three, four, five, six miles. And when you're in around that six, seven mile point, people just stop talking. They're focusing. And you know, there's the, the tight hamstrings or the, the blisters that form. And boy, those blisters, they really, really get to you. Slowly but surely, and I've had this happen before, some want to just give up. They just say, I don't think I can do this anymore. They turn back. And sometimes you're in this process of trying to encourage them. No, you could do this. You could do this. And they say, no, I can't. Sometimes, this has happened to me too, is that there'll be someone in a group who will sprain their ankle. And you have to think, all right, do I leave them there? <laughs> or do, I, do we help them back? Or what, what do you do with that scenario? And then sometimes as you're walking, every, it's quiet, but you see the summit, right? And so you, you're continuing saying, okay, even though I'm really tired, I can do this because it's right there. And then you get to the top of it and you realize that, oh no, that's just an overhang. There's another thousand feet up to the next overhang that you don't know where the summit is. And not knowing exactly where the end point is, Wow, now that's really, really a challenge. That's quite difficult. In many ways, the temptation is so great to think, but I can do it by my own power. And I, I know I don't want to give up. I, mean, I can do it. All I need to do is just put in more strength, put in more effort. That's sort of the Christianity that I grew up with. 
whether I realized it or not, I thought that the way to follow Jesus was Jesus saved you, he rescued you, and then now, after he saved you and rescued you, you have to really start trying harder than ever before. You have to become even holier. You have to especially try to be holier than everybody else. And especially if you're a pastor of a church, then you really have to be holier than everyone else. You can understand why being in that type of context with that distorted view of Christianity leads to weariness, burden, joylessness. And that's exactly how those first few years of ministry was like. Now, it's, it, it's not that it was always miserable, I'm hanging my head all the time, but I will say this though, is that that feeling, that burden never lifted. It was always there. I have to be better, more holy, more godly than every other member of the church or else I've failed. I failed the Lord, I failed God's people, and I failed myself. That's pretty miserable. That's not a fun place to be. No wonder why it's so tiring. But what the Lord showed me was that the same gospel that saved me also has freed me from that type of life, that type of thinking. And sadly, it's not just pastors who go through this. I do believe we all do. All of us do. If we don't have Christ at the center of every aspect of our Christian life. So once again, we're going to look at this glorious gospel. And if you know anything about the book of Isaiah, you know this, is that Isaiah is often called the, the Romans of the Old Testament. It's in every way very similar in its impact and its focal points to what Paul's letter to the Romans is about the core essential doctrines of the gospel. Isaiah does the same. And in this chapter, in chapter 59, he really hammers this point home by showing us these three essential components of the gospel once again. First, verses one through eight, we see depravity, depravity. Second, in verses nine through 15, is repentance. And then third, in verses 15 through 21, is redemption. So depravity, repentance, redemption. First, we'll look at depravity in verses one through eight. When a non-Christian dies, the first question that so often comes from loved ones is this. Is my loved one, is this person that I love in heaven? I get that question. A lot of pastors get that question at funerals. And the reason that most people think they must be in heaven is because they were such a good person. There are many things to say about this question, but one is the idea of goodness. The problem with the word good is that we have a preconception of what goodness looks like. We believe that good means generally good, that if it was a man who had a, a family and He was faithful to his wife and uh, provided for his children, generally didn't break laws, was overall pretty good, had some um, heart for the oppressed, the poor, was beneficent in some way. There's this idea of, well, he wasn't a perfect man, but 
He was good. So surely he should be in heaven. And I think sometimes whether we really recognize this or not, but perhaps even Christians, we tend to think this way, that being a person who is righteous before God is based on this scale that there's a good part and a bad part. And what you're really trying to do is have more good things than bad things. And if you have more good things than bad things, then God looks at that and says, well, yeah, you should be welcome to heaven. You should be someone who is with me forever because you have 50 point something percent above and the 49.000 whatever, 999 whatever is, that's, that's outweighed and so therefore you're welcome. But here's the problem. Much more is that sort of a Buddhistic, Hinduistic view of what eternity looks like. The, the sense of karma or the yin, yin and yang of life, that there's a counterweight and a balancing out, you might say, of the good and the bad. And tragically, I think there are many Christians who are more Buddhist in their faith than they are Christian, or at least bi biblically Christian in their faith. Because clearly this is not what is taught in the Bible. And I hope you'll see this as well here in chapter 59 of Isaiah, that certainly this is not the case. There's a reason why. Because in the end, even one sin leads to a heart that is impure before God because God is perfectly holy. Just to give you an example, it, it takes one gallon of oil to contaminate almost a million gallons of water. And if you think and consider that a milk jug, one gallon of oil, throw that into a, a purifying drinking water area and you will lead to disastrous results. Commentator Ian Dugid observes this. He says, consider the contagious power of dirt. It takes only one drop of motor oil to pollute a gallon of water while innumerable gallons of water will not turn motor oil into something drinkable. When children touch the wall with their dirty hands, they leave a dirty mark. Yet if someone touches the same wall with clean hands, it doesn't leave a clean mark. Dirt is far more contagious than cleanliness. The same inequality is as true in the moral realm as it is in the world of house cleaning. One murder can ruin an otherwise spotless record while one good deed can never transform an evil person into a saint. Sometimes people do say and believe that if someone is convicted of murder or is accused of something, often they will look at the previous record and say, well, this is all the good life they've lived. They've never done anything wrong. They've never been convicted of a crime or anything like that. So therefore, they should be treated less harshly punished less harshly, sometimes even let off because of all the good things they've done. But if they committed murder, really that one murder cannot stand on its own, regardless of the record. And this is the point of Isaiah 59, one through eight, that all the charges are laid out. It's not just one charge though. It's innumerable charges that God lays out before the world to show all of us and to say, you might think you're good, 
But here are the many different ways that you have turned against me. I remember sitting on jury duty. There were two defendants. They were charged with some really heinous offenses. And it literally took almost two hours to read all of the charges against them. So if if you can imagine, two hours of the judge going forth and reading all the charges. I mean, they they had to read every statute and then say, this is what they broke, and started listing them. This is what God does. He lays out for us in verses 1 through 8 all of the charges that are against us. And there are many significant ones. Here's the primary charge in verse 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So that's the foundational, fundamental charge against me and you. Because it is against Israel, but the point of it is that in the New Testament, we see the church is the fulfillment of all of that. And so therefore, we're seeing these charges laid out. And Isaiah repeats this idea, iniquities and sins, plural nouns, numerous, without end. That's the point of those two words, is that they are synonyms to say charge upon charge, every single sin, and it's plural, and it's ongoing. And what have they done? According to verse 2, they've made a separation between you and God. And that word separation, it's exactly the same word in Genesis chapter 1, verse 6, that describes where God says there's a firmament, the heavens and the sky, and there's the earth. And between them, there's a separation. So there's this gap where heavens and earth are coexistent, but neither can pass into the other. And the the line is so strong, it's an impenetrable fortress of a gap, this separation. So that's what happens when we sin. We We are put into this place where there's this impenetrable gap between us and God. And then, to top it off, he says, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. The, the word the, God's face, the concept of God's face being veiled, that's really what it's saying. It's that God's face is veiled. And if you ever have seen in um, the olden days, when someone died, they, had, they put a veil on their face as a death veil. That death veil was to signify that This person is gone. And so there's no way for this person to have any semblance of life. They are dead. And there's nothing that anyone could do about it. The veil signified that. So go back and read verse 2 again. The sins, the iniquities are so great. There's this impenetrable gap that cannot be bridged. And then there's a veil that covers that person literally as though they're dead. This is what happens when we sin. Now, what are these sins like? In verse 3, they're called lies and curses. They fill our tongues with disgusting, filthy language. In verse 4, we're told that they're selfish living for selfish gain without generosity. They take advantage of people and turn a blind eye to those unjustly wronged. So the, the tongue If you read James chapter 3, you know that James goes about and talks about how much the tongue so regularly sins with rumor, with words of anger, with curses. 
all sorts of words that flow out of our tongue, words of envy, words of jealousy, hurtful words, all of these flow out. And Jesus says that anything that comes out of your mouth is actually from your heart. So if we're thinking to ourselves, well, I don't feel like I'm that bad. Well, who amongst us can say that with our tongue and from our heart heart doesn't flow anger and bitterness and words of jealousy and envy and, and uh, filthy language and all sorts of things. So just in case we think, well, that's not that bad. I don't do that that often. Secondly, in verse four, we're told that if you live selfishly, if there is a sense of greed in us, if we're not generous, if we're not considerate of others or kind, then we also fall into this category. Another thing is that we take advantage of people and turn a blind eye to those unjustly wronged. You know, one of my prayers for my children was always that they would be defenders of the defenseless. If someone, if there's a group of people and everyone is hanging out over here and there's one person, maybe a new person, maybe someone who's a little different, or maybe someone who is very different, my prayer always has been that my children would be the person who would go and say, to leave everybody behind and say, hey, be welcoming to that person. I guess my prayer for them was that because I wasn't that person. I wasn't that person. And sometimes there were instances, for example, where when I was young, there was a, one child who had scoliosis and he wore a back brace. And because he wore a back brace, he didn't often take a shower. And because of that, he didn't smell so good. And we were in maybe in the fourth, fifth grade, and all the guys would pick on him. I didn't directly pick on him, but I didn't ever stand up for him ever. In fact, in my heart of hearts, I was always thinking, boy, I'm glad I'm not him. You know, I'm glad I'm not him. You know, verse four says, if you are that person, not the bully, but if you're the person who just stands aside and doesn't say anything, you are guilty. You are the one who is like that. You are the one. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lives. They, they conceive mischief, give birth to iniquity. They're not just. They don't pursue justice for others. It's not justice for yourself. It's justice for others, for the defenseless, for the widow, the orphan, as we see so much in the Old Testament. And so if we're not that person, then we are guilty as well. Our hearts are just as dark. We commit those things. The fact is that we ignore the reality that is sin. And sin, according to the, this chapter and the Bible as a whole, is absolutely contagious. It spreads and multiplies faster than the Omicron variant. Isaiah describes them like snake eggs. If you see that in verse five, they're like adder's eggs. Those eggs, they don't look so harmful until what cracks out is a viper that can with one bite kill a person. And so it spreads like that or like cobwebs, spider's webs. And if you've ever walked into spider's webs, it's just so entangling, you, it's, you can't get out of it, right? It just is all over you, especially if you walk into a lot of it. And that's the idea of sin 
and iniquities, this type of sin iniquities. We can't say before God, Lord, if I just do this many things, can I be free of sin? That doesn't make sense. If you really examine what it means to understand the depth of who we are at the core of our hearts. So what hope do we have? According to verses 9 through 15, the hope comes first in confession. The response has to be confession. We have to really acknowledge that I'm this bad. I really do not pursue God. And it's not just the atheist, it's me. I have to admit that I am this bad. That's where verses 9 through 15 are a confession. If you look, it says, we grope for the wall like the blind. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. And then verses 12 through 13, for our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us for our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities, transgression, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. We know our iniquities. We know our transgressing. We know our denying the Lord. And that's how much we need to be able to be honest before ourselves and before God. I am a denier of the Lord. Every time I sin, every time I speak an ill word, every time my heart has a lustful or angry or greedy thought, I am denying the Lord. That's me. And Isaiah, Isaiah tells us that the only hope we have is to recognize that we are not good on our own, that our moral actions and deeds get us only so far. In fact, Isaiah 59 is quoted by Paul in Romans 3. And in Romans 3, 10 through 11, Paul writes, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. You know, that includes secular people and atheists, but it includes me and you as well, churchgoers, members. That includes God-haters and God-lovers. That includes people who care deeply for the homeless or people who turn a blind eye to the poor. That includes the toddler and infant and the elderly. That there is no one who is righteous, no, not one. Romans 3 and Roman, Isaiah 59 makes it clear that serving God in ministry or going to church your entire life will not be able to save you. For so long, I did believe that. I really did. I did believe that if I do good things for God, that it will some way outweigh the bad things that I do. And so surely then to be in pastoral ministry if I do even more things and have already committed myself, then that'll far outweigh the bad things. And that's also how I can get people to follow Christ is to do more and more holy things so that people will say, wow, actually, he's so holy. I should follow him. But here's the problem with that. The holy person eventually becomes not holy. They don't always do holy things. Sometimes they do really bad things. And then what happens? You become disappointed. You become the person who says, look, you see, he's just a hypocrite. And that's what the world sees. The world sees a bunch of hypocrites in the church. 
The world sees a bunch of hypocrites in the church because we're so busy trying to say we're actually really good and holy. And we might not actually say those words, but our actions show it. When in reality, how often do we share our brokenness, our weakness, our sin, our struggle, our strife? How often do we stand up and give a testimony of not of all the many blessings that God has done and made me so pure and holy, but rather of all of my brokenness? I have had the privilege of reading a number of your testimonies as members. And when I read them, sometimes my heart just rejoices. It rejoices not because I just hear of someone who says, well, I've read the whole Bible all the way through. I've gone on missions. I've tithed my whole life. I'm so generous. I'm so kind. No, I've read some really dark stories. And in the midst of that darkness, it's always, but the Lord came and he saved me and he rescued me. When I read that, I can't help but rejoice. And I think to myself, people need to hear this story (laughs) because every one of us has this story, whether you realize it or not. And I know some of you say, but Sam, I, I haven't done those really bad things that other people have done. No, you, you might not. But what if you were to really share what's deeply in your heart? some of the thoughts that you had about people, then you'd say, but I don't want to share that. (laughs) That would be really bad. Well, that's exactly what Isaiah is saying. This is who you are. And until you come to recognize this, you'll never be set free. Not really. See, for me, I thought I'm doing, doing this for God. And when you do something for God, you tend to think, I'm doing it out of my pure motive because I really, really want to follow God. But I remember I started this blog, actually, very early on in ministry. And I've shared this before, and it was starting to get a lot of hits. And this is where blogs first started, right? And uh, I was starting to connect with different people who are more famous in Christian circles and and I was, every day I'd be trying to write something really cool, really ex- just controversial a little bit. And every day I would look at my statistics because in the back you look at analytics, right? And I'd start looking at analytics and analyzing and thinking, okay, this is how I'm going to grow the church. If I become famous and then I can write a book. And if I write a book, then there'll be more people want to come and the church will grow and then, then I'll become famous. I wouldn't say that, but in my secret heart of hearts, that's what I hoped for. I mean, I could say this retrospectively now, but back then it was really what I wanted. But in, but if you were to ask me then, what are you, why are you doing this? I would have said, oh, because I want to honor God and live for his glory. (laughs) There's such a mixture and I'm not saying all of it was hundred percent self-centered, but it certainly was not a hundred percent godly either. To me, success as a pastor was to attain certain goals. And you could think of this for yourself in your own life, whether it's your workplace, whether it's your family life, whether it's financially. There's a, perhaps a vision of what success looks like for you. But it's often covered with this idea of, well, actually, this is for the Lord. 
And sometimes people will say to me, I really want to make a lot of money so I can give it away to the kingdom and use it for his glory. And sometimes those people actually do end up making a lot of money. And then I recall the conversation and I think, are they using it for the kingdom and his glory? Rarely is that the case. Rarely. Because it's easy to say that when you actually have nothing. But when you get it, it's hard to fulfill it. Why? Because of what we see here in Isaiah. Our hearts are so prone to self-centeredness. And we are guilty. It's not just the atheist who is guilty. We are guilty. And until we see that we are as guilty as the atheist is, we'll never understand this last part, verses 15 through 21, redemption. The turning point of verses 15 and 16 is this phrase, the Lord saw it. And then it's repeated again. He saw that there was no one, no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. I see that as the beginnings of grace. You might not think of it that way, but I do. And here's why. Because it could have been that God decided, I'm not going to see anymore. That's sort of every parent's ace in the car, ace in, you know, up the sleeve when uh, a child is throwing a tantrum. And they keep on saying, I want this, I want that. And you say, all right, you can have it, but you know what? You could do whatever you want. Go ahead. You turn your back. And suddenly, whatever they're holding that they wanted, it's not as precious as recognizing with fear, is my mom turning her back on me and they're going to abandon me? I'm not going to be there anymore? And suddenly they come running, no, 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 no. That is the greatest fear of any child is to be abandoned, to be left alone. It's what Pharaoh experienced when he hardened his heart so much that God said, all right, I will let you harden your heart. In fact, I will harden your heart so that you will never turn to me. David had this same fear after he committed adultery and then murder. There was this dreadful, dreadful sense of God perhaps turning his back. And so Psalm 51 says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. You could almost sense the fear. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. My friends, you want God to see your sin. You never want God to say, all right, you go do whatever you want. That is the most frightful place to ever be. But when God sees you, it is God's kindness that leads you to repentance. The most fearful place is to, for God to turn his back towards you. And when all seemed hopeless, and as we saw last week, when all we like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, and all are unrighteous, and everything seems so dark, and there's no hope, suddenly the light breaks through in verses 16 and 17. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. This is what God had to do. No one was going to turn to him. No one was going to love him. No one was going to respond to him. Every righteous deed was, as Isaiah said earlier, like filthy rags. There was nothing that anyone could do. And so his 
own arm brought him salvation. God had to do the work fully, 100%. And then, what did it take? Verses 18 through 19, it's warrior language. He had to fight for us. How would he fight? He had to fight our sin, our sinful nature, the world, Satan. We were too rebellious, too weak, too stubborn to fight for ourselves. There was no way. We might look and say, I can summit that mountain, but you get to the next peak, and then you say, ah, forget it, I'm giving up. It's too much. We're ready to go back. There is only one way that we have ever turned to Christ. If you are a Christian today, it is not because you've done a lot of good things for God. It's solely because God has reached out and grabbed hold of you, and he's fought for you. And the way he fought for you this warrior Messiah, this savior king, as he has come and interceded through his bloodshed for you. He gave his life for you on a cross. That cross, there was a battle going on there and that battle was for you. And he suffered this greatest tragedy that the world had ever known. He bore the weight of our sin, the full wrath of God. Jesus became derelict, forsaken, so that people like me and you, who had no desire for him, would now be saved. That's the motivation for our works and our labors. Anytime we want to do something for him, it's never because God is happier with you when you do something for him. God is never going to be more happy with you than he is right now already, right at this moment. At the moment that he saved you, he's happy with you because Jesus and his bloodshed covers you. So when he sees you in Christ, he sees his son. And because he sees his son in you, he is infinitely joyous over you. He rejoices over you with singing, as we see in Zephaniah chapter 3. He rejoices over you. And so all of our labors are never to try to get God to be happy with us or to be satisfied with us. It's simply to say, God, I love you. You have done everything for me. And all I give, I give to you. Truly, it is like a child at Christmas. You know, I mean, who just is so thankful. They can never pay back a, uh, a parent who provides all these gifts, all these blessings. And a little, little infant or a toddler is not able to pay back anything that you do. And that's not what you're looking for anyway. <laughs> Any parent here want their two to three-year-old saying, Mom, Dad, please, I know I can pay you back. I'll do everything I can to pay you back. And if they're saying that to you every time, every day, please, let me, you would think something is seriously wrong. Well, what's wrong with you? you you're, I'm not asking you to pay me back. But how much if a child just comes up and says, Mom, Dad, I love you love you because, because who you are. I love you because you love me so much. Is there not a mom or dad's heart that would melt with a child just opening up their arms and say, I love you because of who you are. You, you just show me that love. Why in the world would we ever think if we as parents don't expect our children to be this servile, begging children who always are trying to pay us back, why would we ever think 
That's what God expects of us. God, God's not expecting you and I to pay him back. We can't. We just can't. All he wants is our love. The fruit of that love has expressions, just like a child who's running up and grabbing onto the legs of their parent. So too, we express what we do through our worship, through our prayer and intercession, through our gathering with God's people, through our service, through ministry, through caring for the poor and needy, for sharing the gospel globally. All of this is that expression. So I do think that this compels and propels us then to be patient with others. It should, it must. When all seem lost, if we look at others as though they are so messed up that they will never change, then we have forgotten that we were so messed up. And really, it was impossible for us to change. You know, people might not look as messed up as us, but at the core, we're equally the same. We just look different. So the religious person looks different than the irreligious person. The irreligious person externally might look really bad, and the religious person might look beautiful and great, but internally, it's the same. It's exactly the same. And both of us need a savior. So we do not give up. Don't give up on others. Pray unceasingly for people. Battle in prayer. Fight. Persevere. Cry out to God. You know, God, that's the one thing he says. You can always do that. Keep on praying. Keep on crying out. Because what you're doing is you're saying, I trust you, God, to resolve this situation. There's no way this person, this brother, this parent, this child is ever going to turn to Jesus by what you do, even by telling them what to do. It has to be the arm of the Lord who is strong enough to save. And what you're doing is saying, Lord, please save. And here's the promise. It ends in verse 21, the last verse, and then chapter 60, verse 1. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore, arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. My dear friends, you know, as parents, aren't we raise our children by giving them a bunch of rules, laws. We tell them, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. And we should, we must. There's a place for that. But it's always under, on top of the foundation of the gospel. We're always first children ourselves before the Lord. And therefore, we, like the Lord, we incarnate ourselves. We go down and we get on our knees and we pick up you know, the, the washcloth to wipe the feet of our friends, our neighbors, our children. We're always washing feet first. And from that servanthood, because of what our Savior has done for us, then out of that, the laws flow. It's a big difference. When my child knows, I love you. No matter what you do, I love you. Even if you fail and falter, even if you rebel against me, I love you. And I will never leave you. And then you give the law on top of that. And sometimes there's discipline. There's consequences. That has to be there. But if you set that at the very outset, 
then as they grow, they begin to see that for themselves. They begin to see not you, they see whom you represent, the God who always loved them. So that's why you look at verse uh, 61 and 20, verse 21, you see the promises, the covenant promises. This is my covenant, my spirit that is upon you. My words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring. What lasts generationally is the gospel. That breaks the cycle of sin. It's not going to be the law. It's not going to be do all these things and our family is going to be blessed, prosperous. No, they might be prosperous financially and physically, but they'll turn away from the Lord. But what you are trying to ingrain into generations, multiple generations, is this idea that it's all God. His arm is the one who saves. And do that Commit yourself to that today, and you could see not just one generation, but multiple generations turning and following and trusting in Christ. There will come a day where there is no more fight, no more tears, no more pain. For the joy of the Lord is our strength. Let's pray together. Father, we just praise you for your kindness and goodness to us. Your mercies know no end. You have done the work of salvation through the pain of the suffering of your son. I pray, O oh Lord, that we here would raise the banner high of salvation and would recognize, O oh Lord, that you are not looking for deeds and actions from us. You are looking for a heart change. And you are the only one who can do that. So, Lord, we ask, we plead that you would hear our cries, that you would change our hearts and change the hearts of our loved ones, those around us. And our, help us, O oh Lord, to be a witness, an ambassador for Christ, the glories of your Son. And we believe from that we'll experience new life and radical transformation of ourselves and our communities and our world. We ask, O oh Lord, as we take of this bread and wine that you would remind us once again of how much we need you. We thank you for this goodness that reveals itself through the work of your son, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.